You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement. The pastor God has put over your life commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, in which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Church family, this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we praise you that we get to dive into a brand new letter from the Apostle Paul to Titus. We praise you for these short four verses. We pray that they're not just mere information about you, but it would be true knowledge that leads to ongoing transformation in us. And so would you begin that work in us? Would you continue that work in us right now, Lord Jesus? Holy Spirit, would you descend upon the various homes that are gathered throughout Pittsburgh right now and bring lasting change for the sake of your church and for the sake of your glory alone? Spirit, you're the only one who can do this. Motivate me by love. For any word that I say right now that is not born out of love is just like a noisy gong. It's annoying. It's loud. It drives people away. But let what I do be compelled by your love, Jesus. Help me to love my brothers and my sisters and my neighbors well as I preach this passage. Build us up, Lord. Build me up. It's in Christ's name, by the power of the Spirit, I pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. Well, today we begin our new series in Paul's letter to his partner, Titus. This whole series, which we've titled Doctrine and Devotion, will explore how what we believe informs how we behave. How what we believe about what Jesus has done for us leads to what we do for Jesus. See, Paul, in this letter, will, with great depth and delight, will show Titus how All doctrine, how all doctrine has to and must inform our devotion to Jesus. 
And all that doctrine and devotion will give clear direction for our lives, our lives as a unified church body, our lives within our homes that we live in, in our lives when we think about wise participation in a culture that is animated against this gospel of Jesus Christ. This doctrine and devotion is meant to give direction for our lives. Now, the year 2020 was supposed to be the year of clear direction. I mean, I've heard leaders and pastors say things like, I have 2020 vision for the church for the next 12 months. But then a month later, February 2020, it came to prove how bogus of an idea it is to claim that we know what the next 12 months will bring, let alone the next 12 hours, 12 minutes, or even 12 seconds. Our world's got flipped upside down in a moment. And so as we look to 2021, I've been noticing hardly anybody is talking about an agenda for this next 12 months. I mean, we're, we're three days in now, and nobody that I've heard of has claimed a New Year's resolution. I mean, many of us are afraid to set an agenda for fear that it will all collapse. We're hesitant to put in any work of planning because we know that in 48 hours from now, everything has a potentiality to just change. But I want to put before you that maybe that awareness is actually a grace in your life. That when you are aware that you cannot craft a good plan or a perfect agenda or a clear vision for 2021, you're actually primed to see with clarity that man-made plans are feeble. They're frail and they're faulty. But God's plan has always been and will continue to be set in stone. For God, it's always been plan A from the beginning. He's never had or was in need of a plan B. And that's what we'll see in Paul's introductory passage to Titus, is that God has a singular focus, a singular agenda for the church. And that agenda, Paul will tell us, must be Titus's aim. God's agenda must be our aim. And we'll observe this as we hear these two points. First, God's purpose for Paul. And second, Paul's purpose for Titus. And my hope and prayer is that we as a church, we collectively, we will come to terms with this eternal reality that God's agenda must be our aim. God's agenda must be our aim. And so if you're, you're with me right now, I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Paul's letter to Titus. It's in the very last parts of, of your Bible because I want to make sure that you can make sure that what I'm saying is what the Apostle Paul is saying. So let's dive into this first point. God's purpose for Paul. We read in the first three verses, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect 
in their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted with by the command of God, our Savior. Now, this, this is one of the most theologically rich hellos of any letter ever written. I mean, we might say, dear Titus, or we might say, what's up, Titus? Not Paul. It's a three-verse, single-sentence hello. But some of you might be asking, who, who is Paul? It's a great question. You see, Paul, when he says, I am an apostle, verse 1, of Christ Jesus, he's not only speaking of the authority that he has received from Jesus, he's speaking of a testimony that he has been changed by Jesus. I mean, Paul, who was once Saul, imprisoned and persecuted Christians, just got out of prison for being a Christian. How did this all happen? Well, Paul, like I just said, was previously known as Saul. He was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee among Pharisees, keeper of the law, hater of Jesus, and a murderer of Jesus' followers until one day, on the road to Damascus, he met the resurrected King, Jesus Christ. Christ changed Paul in an instant. Paul, who once thought his relationship with God was, could be achieved by his good works, is now the Apostle Paul who preaches that your righteousness before God cannot be achieved by you. It has to be received by and through Jesus Christ. This Apostle Paul, who was, was a slave to his own self-righteousness and pride, now says, verse 1, that he is a servant, a doulos, a slave to God. God's agenda is now Paul's aim. In Paul's aim, by the command of God, in verse 1, he says, It's for the sake of the elect to grow in faith and knowledge, doctrine and devotion. Now, at first, we might see that word elect, and we might not startle us the way it should startle us. I mean, Paul, remember, he is a Jewish Christian. His purpose was to go and evangelize the Greco-Roman world. That's non-Jewish people. That's like a, a Browns fan trying to convince a Steelers fan to come over to the lights. Or it's like a, a meat-atarian trying to convince a vegetarian that all animal flesh is tasty and good. Paul, right here, is referring to Greek Christians on the island of Crete as God's elect. That's God's name for his holy people, Israel. This, we cannot forget what we just learned in our series in Exodus. That God made himself known to Israel so that he can make himself known to who? The nations. And what we find in Israel's history is that they become made up of this ragamuffin group of a bunch of people from a mixed multitude of people. And we see that when Christ comes, their Messiah, Jesus comes, he has come from the same line of people he has come for. Sinners 
from all tongues, tribes, and nations in need of his saving grace. Jesus comes and brings an identity, the elect. It's an identity that you do not have to work for, but it's an identity that we get to operate from, all because of Jesus and not because of us. And Paul's aim is for the faith of the church, the faith of the elect, and their knowledge of the truth. These are two fundamental characteristics of the church, faith and knowledge, belief and reason. Most often our culture wants to say that these two things are antithetical. They're enemies. The faith and knowledge are enemies, but here they belong together. It's faith and knowledge. We don't just have a blind faith in a pie-in-the-sky God that we know nothing about. No, we have faith in the only God because we know faith and knowledge. We know that God is faithful. We have trust in God because we know God has proven himself trustworthy. And this faith and knowledge is not just for our minds, that we might be this kind of bobblehead where our minds are so filled up with knowledge that our hands and feet don't know what to do. It's not just for our head. It's for our hands and our feet. It's for our lives. It's a doctrine that gives birth to devotion. And Paul is saying in verse 1, when he says, this all must lead to godliness, or in some translations, in accords with godliness, he's saying that what you believe about God informs how you behave in this life. If what you believe isn't leading to godliness, literally in the Greek, a God-centered life, then your faith and knowledge is not based on truth. You see, knowledge is not just about facts. You know, this word, gnosko, is a word that is synonymous with intimacy. Like when a wife knows her husband, and a husband knows his wife, they don't just know about each other. They intimately know each other, and they become one. Paul's aim is for the sake of the faith and knowledge of the church to not just know about God, but know God. And in their knowledge of God, they are known by God. This is intimate knowledge. This is not by works. He doesn't exist for the sake of the work of the church, but for the faith of the church in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Do you know Christ? Because if you claim to know Christ, then you will become like Christ, Paul says. And this agenda that God has and Paul has rests, it's settled, it's, it's lying down on this threefold guarantee. Did you see that in verse 2? It's a future, present, and past guarantee. Past. This is something that God has promised before the ages began before laying the foundation of the earth. It's present. 
meaning that just at the proper time, Christ was manifested to this world. While we were still sinners, he came to save us. And it's a future reality. It's hope in eternal life that is ongoing forevers upon forevers. It's a past, present, and future guarantee that you will grow in godliness when your faith and knowledge is rooted in the truth of Jesus Christ. This is our hope. Now, when we think about hope, we... We use it in a way that someone might be using it at a a poker table when they have a pair of nines, hoping that it might be the best hand at the table. But this is not the way that the Bible talks about hope. The Bible, when it talks about hope, it's always in terms of absolute certainty. It's the, I'm all in. I will win the entire pot, royal flush. It's the best hand in the game. Nothing can beat it. Absolute certainty that all of the riches are yours. That's the hope that we have in Jesus, that all of his riches of his inheritance is ours in Christ Jesus. It's a sure hope, trusted in the fact that we will, not maybe, not might, when we know this, we will look more like Jesus. It's a faith and knowledge that leads to godliness. Do you you see what this means for our lives in 2021? That even if next year is circumstantially just like last year, you won't be like you were last year. This church won't be like it was last year. That even if 2021 doesn't change, God promises that he will change you to look more like him. And he will change this church to look more like Christ. This is clear vision. This is clear direction rooted in the deep doctrine and devotion of God's plan A agenda. This plan A has never failed. It won't fail. And it will never fail, even though you and me might fail at times. And you wonder, how is this going to happen? Well, Paul tells us in verse 3, he's trusting in the command that he's been trusted with. And what is that? Preach Jesus. Preach the gospel of grace. God's agenda to build his church, to produce godliness within his church, is to preach Jesus and nothing else. Preach the work that Christ has began in them, Paul, and that Christ will finish the work that he began in them. God will finish the work he started within us in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's aim. Is it yours? Is it ours, church? This is Paul, God's purpose for Paul. And Paul has the same purpose, point two, for Titus. He says in verses in the beginning of verse 5, to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. See, Titus was a Greek Christian who was this trusted co-worker of Paul. And he helped Paul in a number of extremely difficult and crisis situations. The Corinthians, they despised Paul. So what does Paul do? He sends Titus in with a severe letter. And after Titus goes in, you know what happens? 
They no longer despise Paul, but think well of Paul. That same church in Corinth, they were greedy. They were hoarders of their money. And so Paul sends Titus in again to gather a collection, to persuade them to be generous. Because for their sake, Christ became poor so they they might be eternally rich in righteousness. And what happens? The church becomes generous. Another difficult situation was when Titus had to accompany Paul up to Jerusalem where the Jewish Christians were saying that in order to be a Christian, you not only had to believe in Jesus, but you had to be circumcised. And so Paul puts Titus in a difficult situation and he says, we're not going to circumcise Titus. <laughs> but I'm putting him forth as an example that salvation is not by works, but by faith in Christ alone. I would say that Titus owes Paul for that one. See, Titus is used to difficult situations. And this island of Crete is no different. See, why was Paul's intro so lengthy? He's setting up this theological foundation that's going to address practical realities in the church. These practical realities in all the house churches that Paul planted across the island of Crete. See, most likely the Apostle Paul got out of prison in the early 60s, and he and Titus went and they set up a a network of house churches. And now he's left Titus there to finish the job of of this strategic network of churches, because it's on this island. It means a bunch of harbors where they can send out planters to other parts of the known world. But right now, Paul wants him to restore order in these house churches because they're being infiltrated by corrupt leaders pretending to be Christians. Paul gives a description of them in verse 16. He says, they, these corrupt Jewish Christian leaders, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Remember, Paul just said, knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. Here we have, they profess to know God, but deny them by his works. See, these leaders would conflate the Christian God with their chief God that they claimed was born on this island. You know him, his name's Zeus. Zeus was all-powerful, but he was known to be this seducer of women and a liar to get his way. This is why the the Cretans, that that island, was known for violence, debauchery, and sexual corruption. I mean, their their namesake, Kritizo, literally means to be a liar. Like Minneapolis means city of lakes, and Philadelphia means brotherly love, and Pittsburgh means champions in the original language. That's Y-I-N-Z, for those of you who don't know. Crete, Cretizo, means liar. This is why Paul, in verse 2, wanted to be crystal clear. Look, look, Look with me. He says, The God revealed in the personal work of Jesus Christ is completely different. He's a God that does not lie. He's a God who will not deceive. He will not seduce. But the other problem with these corrupt leaders was they had this focus on outward behavior, circumcision, 
Titus is familiar with this. They still believed that salvation was by what you do, not solely by what Jesus has done. Their equation for the eternal life was Jesus plus good works gets you eternal life. And Paul's purpose for Titus is to put things in order by preaching that it's faith in Christ that not only saves sinners, but sustains them to the end. These liars are teaching that Jesus plus something will get you everything, but it will actually get you nothing. Paul wants Titus to preach Jesus plus nothing will get you everything, eternal life. See, religious people like these leaders love focusing on external works where Paul wants Titus to focus on eternal hope. Religious people love focusing on their good works rather than Jesus' finished work. Religious people love focusing on change today rather than focusing on the eternal change that is coming that produces change not for today, but for every day. Religious people love giving good advice. Paul's agenda for Titus is to preach good news. The corrupt, fake Jewish Christian leaders of Crete taught, obey and God will love you. Paul's purpose for Titus, his aim, his agenda, is to preach God already loves you because of Jesus, and that will compel you to obey by faith. Jared C. Wilson, in his book, Imperfect Disciple, writes this, Our obedience is not the grounds of our relationship with Jesus, but the overflow of it. Let me read that again, just in case you missed it. Our obedience is not the grounds, meaning it's not the foundation. It's not what gets us into a relationship with Jesus, but it's the overflow of it. See, true change never begins on the outside of a person, which is what these corrupt leaders were teaching. True change has to begin on the inside of a person by another person. Jesus has to change our hearts. I mean, do you know why there are hundreds sometimes thousands of self-help books published every year, it's because they don't work. They do not work. True change doesn't come from good behaving. True change comes from glorious beholding. What leads to godliness? Faith and knowledge of the truth of Christ, the way, the truth, the life. That if you want to become more like Christ, behold Christ. If you want to become more godly, church, behold your God. And notice what Paul says it rests on. He says, in, in the hope, not of our works, not of our ability, not in my preaching, not in you, not in any of the other elders. True transformation rests in the eternal hope of Christ, our Savior. God's agenda for real transformation is to fixate our eyes on our faith, not works, faith in Christ, our eternal hope and plan in Christ Jesus. That is God's agenda. That is God's plan for church-wide transformation. Now, many of you had a plan over these last two weeks. 
Like me, you had a plan to go grocery shopping to get ready for the Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, or New Year's feast. Now, I love buying groceries. I love it. I mean, I, and when I get the rare privilege to actually go to the grocery store, I always bring a list. I mean, the list is my agenda in order to get to the goal, a well-prepared feast. Now, I wonder, have you ever forgotten your list? Gone to the grocery store without a list? I mean, what happens? You, you end up buying things that you don't need and forgetting things that you actually do need. And the feast, it's mediocre at best. But, but I wonder, have you, have you ever gone to the grocery store without a list while you were hungry? You end up buying things that you don't normally buy. You're swayed by things that wouldn't normally compel you. And you walk out with the store with a bill that is twice as much as you can afford. With things that you really don't need. And you're wondering what happened. This is what it's like when our souls are starving for purpose and meaning in this life when our aim is not lined up with God's agenda. My fear is that many of us will wake up at some time in the future, in 2021, wondering, how did I arrive here? Because when we don't have God's list, God's agenda as our aim, you know what we'll end up doing? You'll do what I do. You'll you'll add on a list of to-dos for yourself and for others. You end up becoming more controlling, more demanding, more condemning, and more self-righteous like these corrupt leaders. We end up creating rules for us and others that God never requires of us. That lead to a kind of um, pseudo-godliness. We create these lists of, of shoulds and oughts for others, claiming that we know God, but our lives deny him by our works. You see, our, our problem isn't that our eyes and our minds are too heavenward or that our thoughts are thinking too deeply about God. Our problem is that our souls aren't fixated on the finished work of Christ. Our problem is that we are not fixated on our eternal hope that is found in Jesus alone. Because when it is, it produces real change and real transformation. And so church, what is your aim in this life? Where is your hope located? For where your hope is, that is where your heart is aimed. And wherever your heart is aimed is what will transform you. You ought to be transformed into a godless life or a godly life. You have a life that is centering and orbiting around you or it's centering and orbiting around the God of all creation. You see, Paul tells Titus he's committed to this for the sake of the elect, for the sake of the church. That's not a me, myself, and I reality. It's a we reality. For this is God's agenda. He knows that this is a common faith, he says in verse 4. 
that this common faith is the only thing that will bring lasting change and transformation into godliness, into Christ-likeness, and to have wise participation in a culture that rejects Christ. I love how he says it's rooted in verse 4 in their common faith. Notice what Paul did not say. He did not say their common law. He did not say their common strategy. He did not say common commands. He didn't say common to-dos and to-don'ts. What we don't realize is what Paul actually realizes here. That that grocery list, the list, has already been filled, not by us, but for us in Christ Jesus, in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And what is that list? It's God's holy and perfect law summed up in two commands. Love your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what a godly, God-centered life looks like. This was Jesus's aim. And Jesus Christ, he came at the proper time. This is their common faith, Paul says. He didn't come for us after we fixed ourselves up. No. If the prereq was for Christ to come when we cleaned up our act or when we fixed ourselves up or when we decided to start following the law, we'd still be waiting on his first coming. No, it says Christ came at the proper time while we were still sinners, while we were still dead in our sin, while we were still self-centered. And he came to die for the ungodly, me, you, Paul and Titus, and he rose from the grave on the third day so that we can be justified, freely forgiven, just as if we have never sinned. This is why Paul says, grace to you, Titus, peace to you, Titus, from God our Father and Christ our Savior. It's grace because it's a free gift to us at the expensive cost of Jesus' life. It's grace to us when we share in this common communal faith because in Jesus we are no longer self-made, self-centered enemies of God. But instead we have peace with God. We are true children because Christ not only filled the list by obeying the law, but he purchased us. He purchased us by becoming the self-sacrificing peace offering on that cross. Christ's aim was to do the will of the Father, to come and die for the ungodly, me and you. And by faith, Christ's aim becomes our aim. That when God sees us, he sees Jesus, because all of our failed and feeble attempts at our man-made agendas were nailed to Jesus on the cross and buried in the grave, and he remembers them no more. When he sees you, he sees Jesus's perfect life, not our failed lives. And because Jesus failed this or filled this order in our place, when you put your faith in him, there is this eternal feast waiting for us. That is our eternal hope the wedding feast of the Lamb. When Christ, the groom, comes for his bride, the church, we will feast in eternity in the house of God. And our job right now is to come. To come. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. Naked to thee I come for dress. Helpless I look for grace.
Foul unto the fountain I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And Christ has washed us in his blood. And he died in our place. It's when we come to know that we are known by God, it'll produce within us Christ-likeness. You see, if we want to see church-wide transformation, our gaze, our faith, and our knowledge must be fixated on Jesus's past, present, and future promise and hope. See, if we want to see more disciples made, we have this crazy goal that by 2026, you can be able to point to someone who's being discipled by somebody else. But I will fail you if all I tell you to do is do. My job as a pastor is to point out to you what has been done in Christ. So then it compels you to be more like Christ. This is the promise of eternal life. This compels us to change by meditating and acting on that promise. It restores us to live wisely, not just today, but all our days until Christ calls us home. This promise of eternal life, you know what it will do? It will make your 2021 less committed to your preferences and more committed to the whole church. This promise of eternal life with the promise of eternity will also free you from that false load of shoulds and oughts. It'll free you from exercising control over all people and situations. Instead, you'll live with a peace knowing that the final chapter has already been written. And that's grace. And when that's our aim, we'll trust the command that we've been entrusted with. Preach Jesus. Tell others about Jesus to make more disciples who make disciples by preaching grace and peace, not works, to others around us. This is for the sake of the church. This is for the sake of God's glory. This must be our aim because it is God's agenda. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Fixate our eyes on Jesus. Spirit, center our minds, our souls, and our hearts on Christ's finished work. Spirit of the living God, renew our minds. 